Well, good morning. If you're joining us online, thanks for joining us. Before I jump into that, um, what I want to say in Revelation, I want to call your attention to the fact that we're going to be doing, first one we've done, an all-church retreat the night of Friday and Saturday morning, July 15th and 16th, at Camp um, Carol Joy Hollings, which is just up in Ashland. A um, couple thoughts from the, the Bible. John uh, was an apostle. He wrote a number of letters. And at the end of 2 John, he wrote these, shared these thoughts with his readers. He says, though I have many things to write to you, I don't want to do so with paper name. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. This Christian experience is best lived out face to face. And so it was difficult. Travel was difficult for John, but he, he said, if I'm going to make it happen, I, I want to be face to face with you. You know, would you consider a Friday night and a Saturday after we'll be done by after lunch, but a chance for us to get to know one another a little bit better. One, one more thought from 3 John. Again, he's writing a different letter. I have many things to write to you, but I'm not willing them write, I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Yeah, I'll ask you to consider joining us that, uh, yeah, we could have a chance to be face to face with you and with each other. I think that's where our faith fosters, that's where our faith grows. Uh, we get strength from one another. So when I was a senior in high school, I was not a member of school's basketball team, but I followed them. Um, and they were pretty good. But to get a district, they were going to have to beat a team with a player who was six foot eleven. Biggest guy on our team was 6'4 or 6'5. This 6'11 guy was recruited by the who's who in college basketball. So you know college basketball, you know that one of the blue blood programs is the University of North Carolina. They had a coach named Dean Smith. Dean Smith was in this guy's home to try and recruit him. Another one of the blue blood programs, the University of Kentucky. Joe Hall was in this guy's home to try and recruit him. He ended up going to Texas A&M. It was close to his home. Uh, his freshman year at A&M, he was the Southwest Conference freshman of the year. Later, the Southwest Conference would combine with the Big 8 and they become the Big 12. He was a big-time player. Our biggest guy was 6'4". Another guy, maybe 6'5". They were um, NIAA Division Three type players. I thought there is no way we'll beat them. I ate lunch with a student manager. He assured me that they would. And I bet him five bucks. And I'll tell you how it goes at the end of the sermon. But that was an overwhelming force. I remember going to the game that night, and I had to go down to the bathroom. And, and just as they I was coming down, they're coming out. Have you ever been around somebody 6'11"? They're really tall. And I thought, I went back to my seat. I thought, that's the easiest five bucks I'm ever going to get. They're going to run us out of here. It was an overwhelming force. Well... Sometimes it can feel that way if you follow Jesus. The forces are entrenched and they seem to have power and it seems overwhelming. What does God do with the force of opposition to him? That's what I want to toss to think about today. So you got a Bible. If you'd open it to Revelation 19. We're going to go through this passage and wrestle with this question. How does God respond to the forces of opposition? 
How does God respond to the forces of opposition? As you're turning there, let me give you a quick catch up on where we are. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, is a um, kind of an overview. Uh, God is going to communicate using symbols. He tells John, I'm going to give you an apocalypse. I'm going to give you a vision. I'm going to give you a revelation. Think of a political commentator using a political cartoon, using symbols to communicate. But this vision is not for theoretical hypothesis. No, this is a prophetic word to seven churches who were living under great duress. About 90-95 AD, they were in the Roman Empire. The, the Romans believed that blessings were mediated from the gods through the Roman emperor, and so they were, he was to be worshipped as deity. And if you didn't worship a deity, that was a problem. You could lose your life. But John is shepherding these people. He writes a letter, chapter 1, verse 4 says, from the island of Patmos. He has suffered for his faith. He's been exiled there. He's shepherding these seven churches from a distance. Well, chapters 1 through 3 are God's word to each church individually, what's going well, what needs to change. Chapters 4 and 5 brings John into heaven. In heaven, things are in order. On earth, they're not. How do we get heaven to earth? Well, there's a scroll that is revealed that has God's plan of the vindication of the righteous and the judgment of the unrighteous, but it's got seven seals, and you need to be a person of authority to break those seals, and there's no one that has that authority. And John begins to weep until he hears about the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. Old Testament pictures, militaristic for sure. That's what he hears, and he looks and he sees a slain lamb. The idea is God conquered his enemies by dying for them. And that's a picture for us. He, Jesus, is the one that's open. And so he opens the seven seals. And that's the first of a series of three sets of seven judgment. And the first seven seals kind of go in chronological order until the seventh, which we think is going to take us over. But that introduces a new set of judgments, and that's the trumpet judgment. So in chapters 6 through 8, we get the seal judgments, and then that gives us the trumpet judgments. And that they introduce a, a third set called the bowl judgments. But before we get to those, uh, again, the trumpet judgments are in chapters 8 through 11. Before we get to the bowl judgments, we get a, a, an interlude where God explains in chapters 12 through 14 what's really going on. There's a, there's a spiritual battle going on, and we get introduced to a dragon and two beasts. The dragon is representative of Satan. He's been opposed to God, and he's working through human forces, human institutions, and in the end, he's going to put forth a beast and antichrist. And there's going to be a second lieutenant that forces, intimidates, and deceives people into worship again. That, that's, that's the interlude. Then chapters 15 and 16 bring us the third set of judgments. That's the bold judgments, which bring us right up to the end of time. Uh, chapter 17 and 18, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks, is God taking apart Babylon, which is any city-state or any institution that would stand against God. Today we're going to look at the final battle then, as God is ushering in His kingdom, of evil versus God. And that's where we are, God facing down the forces of opposition. So here's where we go, chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 5, it's still people celebrating the fall of Babylon, the nation state. And there's really three voices. And here's the first one in verses 1 through 3. It says, After these things I heard something of a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants of her 
And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Often, people hear about judgment and they blanch, they pull back. How can a loving God judge? Well, God is righteous and he's holy and he's gracious and he's loving kind. And those all come together in him. Hey, and if God just wanted to bring judgment, he never would have sent Jesus. So he is patient, he's long-suffering, but at some point, his righteousness and his justice demands that he act. About two weeks ago, a 19-year-old young man in Lincoln was sentenced to life in prison. He comes up for parole in 70 years. That's the earliest he could get be considered for parole. And you think, well, how could you do that to 19-year-old? That, that, that's sad. It is, it is sad. And it is a, a wasted life. But you need to know, a year ago October, he shot Officer Mario Herrera and took his life. Justice demands that young man be sentenced. Is it sad? Yep. Is it right? Yep, it is. And if that judge couldn't hand down that sentence, we're in a lot of trouble as a culture. That's a picture of the judgment of God. Is he looking forward to it? No. Does he, does he delight in it? No. But does his justice and righteousness demand it? Yeah, it absolutely does. We have no hope of heaven being what it's supposed to be if God won't exercise judgment. Second set of voices celebrating God's vindication of the righteous and judgment of the unrighteous. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, again, created to worship God, fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne say, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. One more voice. And a voice came from the throne saying, I'm in verse 5, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. At this point, we're going to transition from looking at Babylon, and we're going to talk about this final battle of good versus evil that's coming. And, and it's anticipated with a, a celebration, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has been made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Throughout Scripture, the relationship between God and his people has been symbolized in a marriage. In Jewish culture, a couple decided to be married. They were betrothed to one another. They lived separately, but remained faithful until the day of the wedding. On the day of the wedding, the groom goes to the house of the bride and takes her and brings her back to his house that they begin life together. Do you see the symbolism? We are the bride of Christ. And we're waiting for that day when our groom comes and takes us back to his house. Often, marriages are celebrated with a reception or banquet. 
cake and punch, whatever it will. What is the purpose of those? It's to celebrate the uniting of this couple. Do you understand? This is what this is about. And you know, there's, there's events you want to get invited to. There's you want to get in on this one. You don't want to miss this one. Okay? The way in is not knowing the right person or doing the right thing. It's knowing the Savior of the world. And understanding that He came to die for your sin. Saying about the glory of the cross. Yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what gets us the invitation. As one who's been redeemed by Jesus. Verse 9, then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These are true words of God. Then I, this is John speaking, fell at his feet to worship him. He said, but he said to me, No, 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 do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and a brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Celebration. How many baseball fans do I have in here? Baseball fans? Let me, let me see them. Okay, Bo, I see you back there. Okay, those of you who are baseball fans, some of you are halfway. What happened in 2016? What happened? Cubs. Cubs won the series for the first time in 100 years, and people went crazy. The Cubs fans in Chicago, whoo-hoo, and the Cubs have been on cable TV forever, so they've got this network of people. People celebrated. Why? The first time in 100 years. They won the series, and right now it looks like it might be another 100 years before they do it again. Man, people went crazy for the Cubs. I got a guy who drives around our, somewhere in our neighborhood, subdivision. He's got a plate. Cubs win. Cubs win. So here's my question. If a once in a hundred year World Series is worth that kind of celebration, how much more worth the return? of the bride for his church. Do you understand? This is worth celebrating. We've been waiting a whole lot more than 100 years. And this is depicting it. Well, there's one thing that has to happen, and that's the final defeat of evil. And that's what we've got. Start coming in verse 11. It's another judgment scene. When we looked at the bold judgments, there were seven of them. The sixth one is depicted in chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. It's the final uh, defeat of evil. And this is depicted with biblical, uh, with, I'm sorry, with military imagery. But please remember, this is imagery to make a point. What is the point that wants to be made? The complete and utter destruction of evil. Not an actual battle. Remember, one of the things God judged Rome for is these battles where they would destroy lives and destroy people. This is imagery. Remember, to make a point. The victory here is not a military. It's a judicial victory. Okay? And the means, the weapon of war is the word of God, is justice. We're not going to see any weapons used here. It's going to be a judicial victory decided in judgment by the Word of God. Having said of that, chapter 11 opens unexpectedly, and we have a, a, this 
written. And I saw heaven open, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Jewish tradition, their Savior comes on a white horse. More of this writer, verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire, and his, on his heads are many diadems. The diadems signify his royalty. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. There is a part in which we truly know Jesus, but we do not know him fully. And in fact, it's going to take an eternity to get to know him fully. There is a mystery. There is an unknown about Jesus. And that's why, that's part of eternity. It'll take an eternity to get to know Jesus. So in 1997, my wife and I went to Costa Rica to learn Spanish, and then we were going to Chile as missionaries. And as part of that, I got in a, we were down there seven months, about my first month, I got in a men's Bible study. And by about month four, I, I could understand everything. Month three, month four, certainly, I could understand everything that was said. But you know, when it came to humor, I could understand every word and not get the joke. Because humor is understanding something about culture. And so the joke after the joke became, who wants to explain it to Andy? So I'd say, after everybody finished laughing, Kin Kennedy excluded Who wants to explain the joke to me? And so they did, like, I remember this joke, it was, it was about the president of the country. And they're building up, and, and, and they, finally they said, and he said, I forget. And everybody laughed, 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 except me. Well, there had been a trial with his family, and he had a sister who was dating this unsavory character, and somebody beat him up, and they put him on trial, and everybody on the family said, I forget. Oh, well, now that you explained that to me, I get the joke. Ha-ha, it is kind of funny, but I'm, I'm late. I, I, there's parts of culture I don't get. So it is with Jesus, and there'll be parts that surprise us. As I was finishing up my summer there, and I, I, I had one guy who was a particularly good friend, I, I said to him, I said, Fernando, was it a pain for you guys when I was first starting out, and you guys had to slow down everything? He said, Andy, absolutely not. Really? No, man, you were trying to get to know us and our language? We had all the patience in the world for you. I said, my culture's not like that. You don't know English and people are on your case. Why can't you learn English? That's something different. He said, you know, we'd watch you and Hope in church and you guys would, after church would go, you'd go speak with Costa Rica. So all the gringos would go back in the corner and they'd speak English. We didn't want that. We want you to learn it get to know us. You wanted us? Yeah. Well, that's different. Let me tell you, there's going to be parts of Jesus throughout eternity. You got, not, not, that's not, that's not, no, it's not. This one is a mystery. We're going to, we're going to get to know him. Uh, verse 13, he is clothed with the robe dipped in blood. I think it's the blood of the cross symbolizing victory, and his name is called the Word of God. Remember, the victory is going to be judicial. The weapon of war is going to be the Word of God. Showing people their sin. So when I was a little boy, uh, I was in a uh, family of three brothers, and I guess my parents were very concerned that we were slobs at the table. So there was a, a, uh, there was a manners contest in our house, and there was a certain point. And, and, and there, were, there were written rules. Like if you had an elbow on the table, that's a point. So I'll be watching you at the first Sunday lunch. You get an elbow on the table, I'm going to come up and take a point from you. And there were all these rules. You left your spoon in the bowl. That's a point. 
And, and, and so there, there was no arguing. At the end, you totaled up the points, and whoever the least points won. I don't know what, what exactly we won, but, but there was no arguing. There was... So when it comes to judgment, it's going to be the Word of God. It's going to be, it's going to be very clear. Like, like what? Uh, let me just take the first commandment, if you will. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Have you done that all the time? No? Yeah. Guilty. We're guilty. Okay, let me take the second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. How'd you do driving this week? Not so good. You're busted. You're guilty. There'll be no question. When this final battle happens, that we're guilty. Only in Jesus are we made right. Verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Please notice these armies never take part in the battle. Verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it may strike down many nations. This is symbolic in the Old Testament where it said God will judge the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. And he treads the wine press of the, press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That word wrath is mentioned 13 times in chapters 6 through 19. God hates sin. Those who would live it apart from him, either passively or actively, push back on his rule, God will judge that. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is sovereign over all. When we finish, when I finish, we're going to sing about the name of Jesus. And one of the lines in there will be, what a powerful name it is. Yep. At the name of Jesus, opposition will be put down. Remember, we are communicating. God is communicating in Revelation with imagery. We're going to get another image here in verses 17 and 18 that depicts the victory in battle. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. And this is in contrast to the marriage of the Lamb. There's another supper that's going to go on. The vultures, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and all those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both men and slaves and small and great. This is an image that depicts the decisiveness of the final battle. There are some who will take this literally, who are studying the bird population in Israel trying to figure out the return of Jesus. This is an image to show the final victory of God. Having set this all up, now is where we get the, the opposition aligning. I saw the beast, who we met in uh, Revelation 13, the Antichrist and the kings of the earth. They've been pulled in, sucked into this thing. And their armies assembly to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So, I mean, you got, you got a, lot of, a lot of forces played out in this image. How long, what kind of battle? I mean, you expect, I mean, we're 100 days in, in the Russia-Ukraine thing. How, how, many, how many days? How long do you think this is going to last? Not long. Not long. Here we go. Verse 20 and 21. And the beast, that's kind of the leader, was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, 
by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Literal metaphorical, I'm not sure, but it's a place you don't want to be. With that, deception ends. Right here. Right here. Until that, we're going to be living in a kingdom of deception and intimidation. Here's the other part. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him. That's the word of God. Word of judgment. Who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. People, it's a quick battle. It's not a protracted war. It's all the forces of the earth of evil lining up against God and bang, it's done. And what God is trying to communicate here is evil is utterly defeated. We're living in a broken world, in case you hadn't noticed. A lot of pain, a lot of tragedy, a lot of death. This is where it ends. This is where it ends right here. When God, once and for all, puts down. So we're asking this question, how does God deal with the forces of opposition? As we said, God will utterly destroy every force of opposition to Him. God will utterly destroy every force, every force of opposition to Him. Now again, why is this word being given? Initial audience, seven churches facing down the Roman Empire. You will worship our emperor. Remember, they've got, they're building temples. Six of the cities, they're building temples of the seven we looked at to worship the Roman emperor. Five of them, they've got subsidized priesthoods. The state is subsidizing priesthoods, so you will worship. And there's pressure. And if you're Joe citizen or Josephine citizen and you have no power, it's kind of like, that looks intimidating. You need to know. They don't win. They look invincible. But they come and go and God is eternal. And he will defeat evil ultimately. So I was a little boy, I played football, and for grades 5, 6, 7, 8, I played Little League football, and it was weight-controlled. You, you had a weight limit you had to make, and I had a great time playing. In eighth grade, I played at the very top of the weight limit. I like, it was 125 in, pounds, uh, in pads, and I was like 123 to 125, and my coordination came early, so I was the biggest, fastest guy on the field. That is a great way to play football. If you're going to play, be the biggest, fastest guy. And one of my best memories is that eighth grade year playing football. So I went out my freshman year. But you know what I found out my freshman year? I'm not the biggest guy. I'm not the fastest guy anymore. It wasn't so fun. My least favorite day was Tuesday. We split into an A and a B team, and I was in the freshman A team. And on Tuesday, we would scrimmage. And the first part of the practice, we would scrimmage against the sophomores. I hated that because they had us 25 pounds to a man. So when we were on defense, I'm a defensive back. Their line would take out our line. Their full back would take out our linebacker. And I got to take on a back at a full head of steam, 25 pounds heavier than me. Yeah, I'm not having so much fun here. Sure I'm not. And Tuesday at lunch, the sophomores would say, hey, we'll see you. We'll see you tonight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was intimidating. And it's like, like, I mean, if I was ever thinking maybe I could fake an injury to get out of this. Then at the second half, we would go scrimmage the B team. And after being thrashed, we would take it out on them. But I hated that. I, that was my least favorite part of the week. It was intimidating physically. Well, that's a picture of what it feels like in the church sometimes. They're awesome. They're bigger. They're stronger. 
And God wants to say, church, people who follow me, that's not, you're not getting the whole picture. I'm a part of this, and I'm going to put down evil. There's a second reason that God is depicting His judgment so vividly. And it's not to scare us. It's to warn us. Look, if God wanted to execute judgment, He'd just do it. But He's doing this so we might turn. So I get on Facebook, and sometimes I'll be cruising, and they got this thing called Roaring Earth. And this week I saw a, a, a video, I don't know where it was, someplace on one of these safaris, of a, a cheetah stalking an impala. I mean, the cheetah didn't go, hey, 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 I'm coming for you. No, 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 the cheetah creeps up. And then, when within a few feet, spring, well, the impala has no chance. There's nothing sporting about this. That's the antithesis of God. He's not springing judgment. He's not mad. He doesn't want to give it to us. But His righteousness demands it. And so He gives us a way out, and He hopes we'll turn to Jesus. We might experience judgment. And there's people in your sphere of influence, their friends, their coworkers, their neighbors, they're going to school with you. God has them in your life for a reason. That you would follow Jesus and befriend sinners. Remember, Jesus was the one who, I mean, he was the friend of sinners. That was the gripe of the Pharisees. I mean, he was with the prostitutes. He was with the tax collectors. And he was right in there eating with them. And Jesus was not concerned about guilt by association at all. Why? Because he said, I came to seek and save the lost. Think about this for ourselves, but think about those for around us. Who is it that Jesus would have you reaching out to that they wouldn't experience the judgment of God? So let me tell you how basketball turns out. So remember, we've lost one game. We're playing, hosting this team at home. 6'11 guy. We got a couple 6'4 guys. He's Division I. They're NAIA. We beat them by one point. So now we split the games in district. So we got to go play them on a neutral site. So I lose my five bucks, by the way. I lose my five bucks. But I think on a neutral court, they'll run us out. So we go double or nothing. I'm betting with the student manager. And here's what the student manager said. He said, Andy, you haven't seen Coach Hargett coach. Coach Hargett was just one year to school. I don't know what the story was. Very successful. But he said, this guy, this guy can get it out of him. And he'll scheme to defend this guy. Yeah, we'll see about that. We got lucky one time. The second game, the rubber game, we run them out of the gym. Beat them by 20. So the next game, we got to play Temple, and Temple has a 6'8 guy that would go to the University of Florida and be the SEC freshman of the year. And they beat them. They win three more games. They end up losing in the state semifinals. Yeah, I, what the student manager understood that I didn't understand was this coach is really good. And the opposition looks formal, but this coach is really good. Hey, hey, the opposition looks really formal, but Jesus is really powerful. What a powerful name, the name of Jesus. When we see opposition, let's not focus on the opposition. Let's focus on Jesus. He's bigger. He will put this down. What will Jesus do? With every force of opposition, he'll put it down. Utterly destroy evil.
And that's the hope we have. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for this word that uh, you are all-powerful. You're the name above every name. Lord, uh, thank you for your perfect character. We don't know you. It'll take an eternity to get to know you. But um, you're loving, you're gracious, you're patient, you're long-suffering. But you're holy and you're righteous and you're just. And those things come together. And in the meantime, you wait that people might turn to you. But the hope we have is one day you will utterly destroy evil. Lord Jesus, that we would live in that hope. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.